Welcome to Priority Message Series 1. This podcast is brought to you by the Fire and Rescue Services Association, a trade union within the Fire and Rescue Service that is independent and member-led. You can find out more about FRSA by visiting frsa.org.uk. So welcome to Priority Message, the podcast from the Fire and Rescue Services Association. In this episode, I will be speaking with Mark Hardingham, the chair of the National Fire Chiefs Council. Mark grew up in Essex and joined Essex County Fire and Rescue Service in 1990 as a whole-time firefighter, progressing through the ranks until 2010 when he joined Suffolk Fire and Rescue as the Deputy Chief Fire Officer, after which he took up the Chief Fire Officer role three years later. After 31 years operational in the fire service, Mark retired and took over from Roy Wilshire as the National Fire Chiefs Council Chair in April 2021. So, welcome Mark Hardingham to Priority Message. Thanks, Tristan. Great to be here and uh, thanks for inviting me to come on today. No, absolute pleasure. I'm really grateful uh, for your time. Uh, I know it's precious. I know you're a very, very busy man. Um, First of all, just to get a little bit about you and then we can move on to the NFCC a bit wider. But why did you choose to uh, join the fire service back in the 1990s? Yeah, it's a really good question. Feels like a long time ago now. Tristan would be my first observation. Uh, well, yeah. well, it feels like a long time ago, and it doesn't feel like that long ago, if that makes sense, really. Um, I think my my primary thing. I, I I wasn't one of these people who um, wanted to be a firefighter ever since I, I could uh, was five years old or anything like that. Uh, it really wasn't the case. And uh, I, I left school at sixteen and worked in a bank in London uh, for about three years. Um, and basically found myself doing a job that I just didn't enjoy, uh, didn't like it, um, and uh, felt like I needed to do something about it before I got stuck in the trap of uh, of looking around in the organisation and seeing a load of 30 and 40-year-old people who'd been there 20 years and were pretty unhappy, and I, I, all I knew was I didn't want to be one of them. Um, so I, I, I joined the fire service from there, and uh, I really liked well, what attracted me, I, I, I really liked, the, and I still do believe in the public service piece. It was one of my frustrations in, in a bank that I didn't feel like I was doing something that added any great value. Um, I'd always been into um, sports and sort of wide social circle of friends, so I, I liked stuff that had a sort of team-based aspect to it. Um, having spent three years working in an office in London, I wanted to do something a bit more practical, I wanted to do something that had a bit more variety. Um, I wanted to do something that got me outside uh, in the fresh air as much as anything else. Um, And actually, I quite liked the idea of shift work. Um, So I'd worked Monday to Friday, nine to five for a period, and I knew that the fire service was a shift work-based organization. I liked the idea of that. And frankly, from the day I started the application process, uh, I've never, ever regretted it once. Uh, it's given me some fantastic opportunities. It's given me some really funny experiences and times, and equally, it's given me some some that's completely opposite. Some really sad, um, terrible things that you get involved in. But um, I've worked with some amazing people uh, over the years, and 30, 32, 33 years on, I still firmly believe in what the fire service does and what firefighters do. 
Yeah, similar to, to you, I didn't, um, I had no aspirations of joining the fire service at all um, until it came up when I was 30. Right. Uh, I don't know why that was, but, you know, normally it is when you're growing up as a boy. Yeah. Uh, being a f- firefighter is, is something that you normally want to do or become a professional footballer, but I didn't want to do either. Um, so 30 years is a very, very long time. What, um, how have you seen the service change over those 30 years? Um, so I would say, I'd say there's a lot that's changed, but then sometimes it feels like not a lot's changed. Um, and the reason I say that is because if I reflect back on uh, my time as a firefighter, then fundamentally we're still doing the same job and we still broadly do the same job in the same way. Um, and the public still have fantastic trust and confidence in the fire service and firefighters in doing that. Um, But of course, in other respects, it has changed. The world around us has changed massively in the last 30 years. And um, so have people and people's expectations of uh, their lives and public services have changed significantly as well. And I think people who join the fire and rescue service have very different aspirations, ambitions and drivers than I did when I joined 30 years ago. So, in some respects, not much. In some respects, a lot's changed. I think one of the things that has changed a lot, and I was reflecting on this with some colleagues recently, is the expectation of a firefighter. doesn't matter whether you're a whole-time firefighter, on-call firefighter. It really doesn't matter. Um, what we expect of a firefighter now does feel quite fundamentally different to when I joined all those years ago. And if you just think about what is it that a really good firefighter does now? Well, they're really, they're operationally and professionally very competent um, when they're out with the public responding to 999 calls. They understand an increasingly complex built environment. Um, and that's not just in kind of big cities. That's right across the country. Um, the built environment is much more complex. Vehicles are much more complex. Transport infrastructure is much more complex, uh, climate-related events, much more complex. Um, and, of course, they're complex when they're static. They're increasingly complex when it goes wrong and they catch fire. And we expect firefighters to have a good understanding about the complexity of the building, but also the complexity of the building when it's starting to fail. Um, and then if you step outside of the operational role, we expect firefighters to understand all of the national operational guidance that comes with um, being a firefighter, but also they have to have um, a sort of basic level of understanding around the legislative fire safety fire safety environment. So what, what does fire safety look like inside a building and what's the fire service's role in that? We expect them to have um, great skills to enable them to interact with communities, uh, particularly in the prevention work we do, um, and be able to engage just as effectively with very young people as they do with elderly vulnerable people or people from diverse communities that they might not necessarily be familiar with in terms of their own background and their upbringing and the way that they live their lives. Um, We expect them to have a good understanding about safeguarding and all of the different issues associated with that. We want firefighters to be great at teamwork. We want some to have real leadership qualities that enables them to step into a space when leadership is required or progress through the organisation into leadership roles. We expect people to be culturally intelligent um, 
so we we have an increasingly diverse workforce and i'm sure we'll touch on some of that later and then we expect them to be fit uh, of course uh, and and all of that is generic and then on top of that if you're an on-call firefighter we expect you to be able to do all of that and balance that alongside your primary employment a family life and a social life as well so i think that that's some that feels very different to me and then I suppose just a couple of other final points is um, technology has changed massively, um, whether that's social media, 24-7 media, whether it's modern methods of construction, whether it is emerging energy technologies. Um, so I, I, think, uh, I think sometimes it feels like not much has changed, but actually when you really think about it, a lot has changed and the expectation of the fire service and firefighters has changed a lot in that 30 years as well. So um, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that I was planning to ask a bit later on, but bearing in mind what you just said, um, is a firefighter a firefighter? So I, I, I think they are. Uh, I think they are, and I've worked in I've worked in Essex, which was a more well Essex, I'd say, was a bit a bit more of a split between um, urban, rural, whole time on call, and then I spent yeah. uh, a fantastic eleven years uh, working with. Um, colleagues in Suffolk Fire Service, uh, which was a predominantly um, rural fire service with, um, well, when, when I left, there were four whole-time fire engines, two day-crewed fire engines, and uh, 39 on-call fire engines. And every fire station had an on-call contingent attached to it, and most only had an on-call contingent. Um, and when I spoke to those firefighters, uh, whole-time or on-call, uh, when I met them in the operational environment um, at a range of different incidents, uh, frankly, I never viewed them any differently. Um, so for me, um, well, a lot of the time, given the turnover of firefighters, I had no idea whether I was speaking to a whole time or an on-call firefighter. The conversation was and that's the way it should be. Yeah. yeah. So, so yes, I've I've been a fan of the principle of a firefighter being a firefighter all that time. But that, but there's something about being equal, but also being different. Um, because there are different pressures, different contexts, different circumstances, and of course you need to take that into account, and that plays into some stuff I'm sure we'll touch on later around uh, recruitment, retention, and everything else associated with the on-call firefighters. Yeah, absolutely. So something else you said about um, we expect them to be fit, obviously that's a bit of a hot topic as well, um, although we've been talking about it for quite quite a few years. And the conversations I've had uh, with other chiefs is that I do wonder whether we sheep dip a little bit too much where we expect all firefighters to be uh, of a certain standard of fitness. And I just wonder whether, depending on what we ask them to do, whether we could break that down a little bit, um, i.e. if you don't need to wear BA um, or if you're not reaching a particular level of fitness but you are a driver or you, you, you can be an OIC, whether we can create um something that works for everybody as opposed to just having that one standard yeah it's, it's a re- it's a really good question and um and i think it i think it's important that whatever we have is well informed well evidenced and well researched and based upon good quality Agreed. data um, yeah. and i think to an extent we've got that so far with the work that was done previously through Bath University and the like. Uh, but but as you say, it is a sort of single fitness standard that is broadly applied across uh, all roles in the fire service. And if I've learned nothing um, from working in an on-call service, one of the things I have learned is about the need for flexibility. 
mm-hmm. um, and the need and, and the acceptance that what might be a solution in one part of your service uh, for an on-call fire station might be completely not the solution for another part of your service with a different group of on-call firefighters. So I, I definitely think there is, I'm, I'm not sure I have the answer, Tristan, but I definitely think there is room for a conversation about how do you apply a degree of flexibility that supports recruitment and retention in a way that enables you to deliver the best outcomes into local communities um, and meet their expectations and their needs um, in both urban and particularly rural firefighting settings. Yeah, I think we're both agreed on that. Um, Just before I move on to the NFCC, um, you've been in for 32, 33 years. I've now been involved for 26. During that time, have you seen um, the wheel being reinvented? You know, things that you've experienced many years ago coming back through a cycle because i it struck me over the last couple of years that i am seeing past stuff being regurgitated and i wondered whether over your long career whether you've felt the same yeah i I, i'm quite sure i'm trying to think of specific examples really but I'm, I'm quite sure it has. And sometimes it's an indication that you've been around too long when you see something yes. come around for the second and third time, really, which might be one of the reasons that I left Suffolk and came into the NFCC. Um, but um, I, so, yeah, I, I think so. And I think sometimes that is because um, there are there are things that are tried which are, in, as, a, as a kind of principle, are the right thing to do, but the timing might not have been right to do it. Or the technology might have come on or something might have changed that better enables it to be delivered with more success now than it was in the past. And I think sometimes there's an element of that in that if if something was tried 10 years ago and it was unsuccessful, then just because it was unsuccessful doesn't necessarily mean it was a bad thing. There might be a whole range of reasons why it was unsuccessful 10 years ago, but none of those should stop you having a go at it now if it feels like and the evidence suggests it's the right thing to do. The important bit is that you don't start with a blank sheet of paper again. Actually, there's a load of learning from 10 years ago to really pick through and understand why it didn't work so you don't make the same mistakes again this time. So so I think, Yes, there's a degree of inevitability that you'll you'll come round with similar solutions for a second and sometimes third time to have another go. And one of the reasons for that, if I pick the on-call service again, is that um, again I'm I'm convinced that there is, there is no single silver bullet um, that that solves um, issues in the on-call fire and rescue service for services or individuals or in many other parts of fire and rescue services so sometimes there is a need to go back to what has been done previously and just see if you can do it better this time around so you've already scored two brownie points you've mentioned flexibility and you mentioned that the fact there is no silver bullet you're absolutely right um so again you touched on it what made you um make the move from suffolk operational you're the chief fire officer to the NFCC role. Yeah, great question. Because um, being the chief fire officer was a was a real privilege, um, and in Suffolk was a county council fire service. So um, I wasn't just the chief fire officer; you're a director in the county council, and I had a whole range of other responsibilities as well as being a chief fire officer as well and sometimes they felt like a bit of a burden um, but actually the majority of the time they didn't and when I look back now some of the best things I was involved in was some of the stuff I did in the county council as well as 
the fire and rescue service. But I'd, I'd got to a point where um, I'd been the chief fire officer for eight years. Um, and in my head, I'd always thought that in that senior leadership position, your sort of tenure of five to eight years feels about right. Um, at which point it felt for me, and it, this, I'm not saying it's the same for everybody, but it felt for me that um, it was time for uh, for me to go and do something different for my own kind of freshness and, and energy and stuff like that, but also probably the right time for the organisation. Um, and in part because I think the process of IRMP um, and the process of inspection now on top of that means that you sort of live in cycles, um, typically about three-year cycles. Um, and I'd gone through, I was just coming around to the end of the sort of third cycle, really. Um, and the, the thinking for me was, uh, I, I either go now or I commit to another three years and see through another cycle of your CRMP and, and uh, a couple of inspections and the like. Um, and it, it felt like the right time for me to go. And uh, as much as I miss the service and some of the colleagues, both in the County Council and the Fire Service, um, I've had the fortune to step into this role, so it's never felt like um, the wrong decision. Um, and I did have a bit of an opportunity because for the last three and a half years of doing the Chief Fire Officer's role, I was also the protection lead in the NFCC, supporting all the work, responding to fire safety around the Grenfell Tower stuff. So I'd sort of had half a foot inside the NFCC anyway, which uh, helped me make that decision. So, so for the listeners' benefit, obviously, you know, I, I've been involved in um, Chief Fire Officers Association, as it used to be known, CFOA, and, and now the NFCC. But there's going to be people listening who aren't really uh, sure what role the NFCC plays in the fire service. Would you be able to provide that clarification? Yeah, of course I can. So, so the National Fire Chiefs Council has been around since 2017, uh, replaced the Chief Fire Officers Association, uh, and has over the course of the last six or seven years through Roy's leadership and then me in the chair's role for the last two and a half years, has changed beyond all recognition from what CFO was previously. So I, I would summarise, so we're a charity. Um, we have a board of trustees uh, with an independent chair of that trustees, um, and I report into um, that, that uh, trustees. They're the people that appoint me. And uh, the appointment of the NSCC chair is for two years plus another two years. Uh, and I'm about eight months into my second two years uh, now. And uh, a big part of my role is four times a year, all of the chief fire officers in the UK come together and we have a two-day meeting where we talk about um, policy, strategy, products, guidance, whatever it might be, uh, related to UK fire and rescue services. Um, every member, or every fire and rescue service in the UK is a paid up member of the National Fire Chiefs Council. Um, so your fire and rescue service will pay uh, a contribution to the NFCC every year. And by way of that, it means you and your fire and rescue service are part of the National Fire Chiefs Council. Um, and uh, we, don't have a, we don't have a headquarters. We're an entirely virtual organisation, but we employ a number of people and I have a chief operating officer who sort of runs the inside of the organisation, a woman called Susanna Hancock. Uh, and broadly, the NFCC does four things. Uh, the first thing it does is I have an advisory role into the uh, Home Office Minister for the Fire Service, Chris Philp. Um, and that advice, the advice I give is informed by the views of 
and the 50 plus chief fire officers across the country, but also the 500 members of the NFCC who are all of the senior officers in UK fire and rescue services. So that's the first thing we do, uh, and, and that is specific to England. I don't have the same advisory role into Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. That's done in a slightly different way through their services. Uh, the second role we have is um, we produce products and guidance uh, for fire services to use. So if you're using uh, national operational guidance, if you're using national operational learning, if you're wearing PPE that's part of a collaborative PPE procurement, um, if you are uh, responding in a fire, fire engine that's been part of a collaborative procurement framework, um, if you are using the digital safe and well um, visit tool, uh, if you are applying safeguarding um, guidance or doing DBS checks in your service, um, if you're involved in fire safety work using national guidance, uh, if you've uh, attended the uh, a leadership program, supervisory leadership program you might be involved in at the moment, uh, we produce a vast range of products and guidance for fire and rescue services to use, and we run a lot of programs, leadership programs and the like. So that's the second thing we do. The third thing we do is that we are a membership organisation. First and foremost, that's what we are. Um, and we produce and provide uh, both personal and professional development for our membership. Um, and we do that through some of the stuff I've talked about previously around leadership programmes and things like that. But also we run about 12 or 13 national conferences every year. Uh, some of those, the spring conference and the autumn conference are sort of generic conferences where we cover a broad range of subjects, but then others are more particular around prevention or protection or national operational guidance or cultural inclusion or the on-call conference we run every year or FireFit. Um, so we run those conferences. And then the fourth thing we do um, is we have a national leadership role. Um, and that national leadership role can be for a range of different reasons. So if you think about Storm Babbitt, uh, that came through at the weekend, uh, then the national resilience function of fire services part of the National Fire Chiefs Council, albeit run directly by Merseyside Fire Service and Phil Garrigan up there. Um, but the NFCC has a coordinating leadership role in that space. We had a leadership role around COVID, working closely uh, with partner organisations. We have a leadership role uh, into the inspectorate, supporting services, um, and trying to think what other stuff we've done recently. So the RAC um, uh, issue that hit schools recently, uh, well, that played into the fire service environment as well, and government come to us in the NFCC and look for us to provide national leadership uh, in that space. So those are, those are, well, those are the four things we do, and hopefully that gives uh, people a little bit of flavour about what the NFCC does. And I can guarantee you that pretty much most things that you're involved in in the Fire and Rescue Service will have some link back to the work of the National Fire Chiefs Council. I think you covered that really, really well, Mark. Thank you. Uh, membership, am I right in thinking area manager and above? Or have I got so, that wrong? So, so two sort of different things, really. So um, you're, you're right. So area manager and above or equivalent. So um, green book, grey book, uh, doesn't matter. If you're somebody operating at area manager and above, then you are a, a, what we call an individual member of the NFCC. And what that basically means is that you get a vote at the AGM. So there are about 500 people who are able to vote at the uh, annual, annual AGM and have a vote in electing the next chair of the NFCC as well. Um, but 
um, anybody in any fire and rescue service as a consequence of your fire and rescue service paying their professional partnership fees every year for the NFCC is effectively part of the NFCC. So you can get involved in events, you can be uh, involved in a working group, you can pick up a lead in a particular area. So you are part of the NFCC uh, as a consequence of all of that. And we've got a website and people can find out a lot more um, if they search for the National Fire Chiefs Council uh, and have a scoot around on our website. And in terms of um, appointing people for lead roles, is that down to you or a, a board? Yeah, so it's uh, it's we keep it fairly informal because if somebody steps in to do a lead role, effectively they're doing it on a voluntary basis. So when I was the protection committee chair for the NFCC for three and a half years when I was in Suffolk, um, then that's a job you do over and above uh, your day job. So we have... So if so, let's think. So we've got some adverts going out soon for uh, lead roles in the NFCC because people are retiring and moving on. So the advert goes out, and we keep it really light touch, and we just ask people to kind of send us an email back with 200, 300, 400 words on there, just saying why you're interested in being uh, the lead role and making sure that your line manager is happy for you to do it. Um, and then once we get, once the closing date's gone, I'll sit down and look at the people who've pitched in for that role. Um, and I'll normally speak to the committee, the national committee chair who looks after that piece of work, uh, one of my two vice chairs and a couple of colleagues inside NFCC. Uh, and between the five of us, we'll look at the expressions of interest um, and we'll make a decision uh, based on that. So we try and keep it light touch, but at the same time, it's just—it's not just my decision. Effectively, we broaden it out to make it uh, a bit fairer and uh, much more open and transparent. So, so that sounds similar to how a trade union would work in a way of um, the employer allowing those officers some time off to undertake those pieces of work and those roles. Would that be fair? Yeah, it's sort of broaden. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't quite say it's time off. I mean, what what I. So as a, as a chief fire officer, as an example, and it's not just chief fire officers who pick up lead roles by any means, but as a chief fire officer, and probably actually as a senior leader in a fire and rescue service, I think increasingly part of your job is there's an expectation that you'll do some national work as well. Um, it's it's just kind of part of what you do. And I always remember um, being in a regional meeting with six chief fire officers and six chief constables. Um, and it was with the Home Office. Um, I think it was Mark Sedwell when he was the Home Office um, director and um, he asked everybody to introduce themselves and the police officer, the police chief constables all introduced themselves as my name is so and so I'm the national NPCC lead for this and I'm the chief constable of here um, and it always struck me when they said that because in at the time in the fire service we didn't do that we introduced ourselves as the chief fire officer of Suffolk um, and director in the county council who does this this and this and some of us might have talked about the national role we had. Um, I think that shifted with the NFCC. And mm-hmm. I think there's much more acceptance that you, you take on a national role now. Um, but it's not just chiefs. I mean, there are um, there are plenty of people in fire services at middle and um, sort of area manager level who've got national lead roles. Um, and it really depends. Uh, well, it is a voluntary role. You do do it um, over and above your day job and your service will allow you some time to do that because they benefit from that. Uh, but equally, inevitably, people do some of it in their own time um, as well. Uh, that's probably the reality of how it works. And depending upon which national lead role it is, I mean, most of them, it's it's a, a day here and a day there. 
Um, and particularly if you kind of wrap a team of volunteers around you as well, um, then you can sort of spread the work. And we are now, um, as NFCC has evolved, there is much more resource and support inside NFCC to help people who've got those national lead roles so you don't feel like you're carrying the burden uh, all on your own. So as as the head of that organisation, what, what does an average day or week look like? Obviously, apart from undertaking podcasts with us, yeah. what does an average day or week uh, entail for you? It's, it's yeah, yeah, interesting question. So I, I suppose my first thing I'd say is I'm not sure there is an average week. Um, it's, it's a full-on job. Um, so it's very busy, uh, but then loads of people have got busy jobs and much as they would say, I would say it's probably too busy because one of the things you, you don't get enough of is a bit of downtime and thinking time, uh, not to go off and uh, do stuff that's not necessarily work-related, but just to kind of think about your work and what you want to do next and some of the sort of longer-term planning stuff. So uh, it's pretty busy. Um, it's it's different being in a virtual organisation. Um, so most people listening to this, I guess, are from fire and rescue services, which are very stable fire station headquarters based organizations where you can go and see people and meet people and things like that well we, we simply we don't have a headquarters at all um, we're a virtual organization and we employ people from all four corners of the uk so there's massive benefits in not having a building to which everybody's got to come to work because you can recruit people from anywhere but equally there are challenges as well in working in that environment which is very different from everything i've known uh, in my whole career, really. Um, but I, I would say, um, so So I work from home. I'm at home now. Um, and I probably spend a couple of days a week in London, um, whether it's for the home office, whether it's with uh, another government department or the inspectorate or the national employers or, frankly, anybody else who uh, tends to sort of gravitate towards London. I spend, I'd say, on average, a day a week somewhere around the country whether it's at a conference, in a fire service, meeting somebody, doing, doing whatever that might be, that's probably a day a week. There's a bit of international travel. So NFCC have got increasingly strong connections with our equivalents in Australia, uh, the US, uh, the EU, Canada, Mexico, uh, and the Middle East as well. So there's the occasional international stuff, both me going there and them coming here. Um so, so I never feel like I'm, I'm in one place for very long. And it's a really broad range of subjects um, that I'm involved in at that sort of mostly strategic level. Not always, but mostly strategic level. And if you give you a, a sense as to just thinking about my diary this week and where are we, we're coming towards back end of Thursday, um, then the sort of conversations and meetings I've been in this week and the people I've spoken to has been um, the Independent Fire Standards Board, um, some stuff around uh, culture and inclusion and meeting with some um, colleagues where we've set up a, an independent expert advisory group. Um, I've had a, I have a weekly meeting with my two vice chairs uh, and with the with Susanna as my chief operating officer inside NFCC. Uh, I've done some work with the firefighters charity this week, um, some work with Ian Hayton as the health and wellbeing lead. Um, I had a steering group meeting so steering group is about a dozen chief fire officers who are the national leads plus representatives from the devolved services and we meet six or five times a year. So we had one of those meetings this week that I chair. 
just this morning, I was chairing um, the Protection and Fire Safety Board meeting with the Home Office, DLUG, HSE, the LGA. So that's a monthly meeting I chair. Um, I had a conversation with an ex-police chief constable um, talking about some work they're doing with us, uh, the inspectorate, a bit of stuff on national resilience from Babbitt at the weekend. Um, what else have I done? Uh, we're talking about the, a, uh, the current collaborative PPE procurement framework is coming to an end, so a meeting to talk about what do we do next on that. Um, I'm on the judging panel for the fire awards uh, at the end of the year, so I had a meeting with uh, Andrew from Fire Magazine, and after this, I've got a meeting with the HSE. So that's that's a, a feels like a pretty typical week, really. So a broad range of subjects with a really broad range of partners as well, which, to be honest, is a, is a privilege. Makes it really interesting. It's always interested me from the outside. I can imagine that your job's really difficult in terms of getting a room full of chiefs to agree on one thing. And it, it, the perception would be that it's like herding cats. What's the reality? So the reality is, uh, like a lot of things, I think um, I think it's about relationships. This role, I think you have to you have to work to build the relationships with your chief fire officers and, and the people who've got national lead roles for the NFCC. Um, and uh, and and yes, on 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 most things, we do seek to get a single direction of travel a single view when we come together um, as chiefs um, and we come together four times a year um, in council meetings in person either in Westmeads or London but in between that we have an all chief foresters fortnightly call so we're doing a lot of work in the background to that to kind of get ourselves into that sort of place and, and I would say on most issues because we're largely all trying to achieve the same outcome um, we do broadly agree um, but you have to accept in this role that's not always going to be the case. Um, and when it's not always the case, then you have to try and seek compromise. Um, or sometimes um, if the sort of final decision is ours, if we're producing something or agreeing something and not everybody agrees, then you try to get to a compromise position. Or you get to a position where three quarters of the chiefs all take it on board and do it and the others might not they might go in a different direction but sometimes we're coming to an opinion because we've been asked what is the fire services or what is the nfcc and chief forester's view on something home office might have asked them a question and i'll often go back and say there is no single absolute view what you've got is a range of views because all fire services are slightly different chief fire officers are slightly different and um, their experiences that inform the positions they take all come from slightly different perspectives as well. So what I'll often say is there is a broad range of opinion and it includes sort of from here to here. Um, and then sometimes, depending on the matter, it'll it'll be my role then to say, so having looked at that broad range of opinion, my NFCC view is this. Um, so, so, yeah, it's... Um, it, it's, an, it's a really interesting part of the role. Sometimes it can be quite challenging, but the majority of the time, I think, with the dialogue we have, and if you make sure stuff is increasingly informed by data and evidence, then you can come to a pretty agreeable position, I think. Sounds like we need to get you on a flight to the Middle East to try and uh, yeah. broker a deal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, not, not wishing to put you on the spot, um, and in no particular order, can you list three challenges the fire sector currently faces? Okay. Um, 
I was talking about this with some international colleagues just last week. So um, I'm going to give you three and then I'm going to slip in another two because um, it's really difficult to do three. But I'll start with the three that I was talking to uh, international colleagues about. Um, and the international piece was about some work we're doing to create a, a, a platform for a World Fire Congress uh, next year um, in the US. And the three things were um, climate change, um, so whether that's wildfires, whether it's flooding, whether it's population migration, whether it's um, the impact on economies, um, you could wrap it all up in that. But climate change, I'd say, would be one. Um, emerging energy technology, whether that is your kind of big ticket battery energy storage systems or it's the other end of the spectrum, which is far too many people dying because they work in the gig economy and they're recharging their um, uh, poorly constructed scooter or electric bike that's been converted with an adapter that doesn't really fit the battery and all of that sort of stuff. So emerging energy technology would be one. Um, and the other one I would say would be firefighter health and wellbeing. Uh, and in that, I would include um, safety, I'd include contaminants, and I would include the sort of broader wellbeing piece as well so those those are the first three i'd say the second two i would add on mm -hmm. one would be um the the on-call duty system um and and that's not specific to us and i'm sure we'll touch on that a bit more um and then the third would be the opportunity for improvement um and you'll note i didn't use the word reform um, I talked about the opportunity for improvement um, because people don't always want reform, but I think most people want improvement. So sometimes the language is is quite important, and I think there are areas uh, where we can be better and provide better and more services to the public, and we've not got there just yet. No, agreed. Um, so let's let's take you back to number four then. Can you give me your thoughts on the never-ending conundrum of the recruitment and retention of on-call firefighters and how we can make the necessary improvement? Yeah, yeah here's a... I mean, I, I, I go back, I, I think NFCC did do some good work um, under Terry McDermott, the, the chief yep. of Derbyshire, and with the help of um, John Price and our chief of Hereford and Worcester. Then we had the pandemic, yep. and understandably, uh, attention was diverted elsewhere. We just seem to have lost that momentum. Yeah, so so I was I, I didn't add them on to the, the sort of people I was having a conversation this week, but um, I know you've done a podcast with Steve Healy before, who with Andy Cole is the other two NFCC on-call leads, and I was emailing Steve Healy this week um, about some stuff that Steve wants to do, and we're looking to resource uh, with him uh, around this. So I, I would start by saying I, I sort of wrestled with this every day in Suffolk, um, and I would describe it in sort of three ways because, firstly, I'm just not sure that governing bodies always got it and understood the challenge. And, and I can remember having a couple of conversations with councillors in, in uh, the county council at the time who weren't directly involved in the fire stuff who would just say to me, we just, just need to tell them to be on duty. I mean, we need the fire station to be available. Just tell them to be on duty. And, uh, and, 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 I want, and that's not being critical of them, but it just – gives you a sense of sometimes the lack of understanding about 
the role and the nature of being an on-call firefighter. Um, and I used to describe it as the project that will never end because um, projects have a start. Well, Painting the fourth bridge is what it is. Yeah, it is. You're just going to keep going around and around and around. And you'd come up with a good idea um, for recruitment, retention or whatever it was to do with the on-call. And you go to the left half of your service and have a conversation with the station. They think it was a great idea. And then you go to... 40 miles away to the other side of the station and they think it was a terrible idea and they're all going to up sticks and leave if you bring that in, which comes back to my point earlier about flexibility. Um, so we need to try and get to a position where there is much more flexibility um, that recognises the fact that an on-call firefighter has a primary employer, has a family, has a social life, and those three things will be different for one on-call firefighter as they are to another on-call firefighter. So if you have something in the middle of that that's static, it's always going to kind of be bouncing around and knocking into each other. So I think flexibility is one. Um, I think there is some stuff that is sort of fundamental about just your fire and rescue service. Um, and, and one is about it being a great place to work. Um, and as, a, as an on-call firefighter, you feeling like, it's a great place to work. You, you like the uniform you wear. You think the PPE you've been provided with is really good. You think the organisation is really interested in your health, safety and well-being. You think you have a voice in the organisation as an on-call firefighter. Um, you think that the organisation feels inclusive when you join it in, in all the kind of examples of inclusion that we talk about. Um, and then you get into some of the sort of more gnarly or difficult stuff, which is about um, actual investment in the on-call. How much, how, much how much are you able to and how much are you prepared to direct resources and investment into the on-call side mm -hmm. of your service, um, accepting that money's always tight and there's always a finite pot and there's always a bunch of spinning plates in the background in a whole range of other areas. Um, it, it, there's, there's always something in there about financial reward. And I know a lot of on-call firefighters don't just do it for the money, um, but it, it, it is a reality, uh, the financial reward aspect. Um, and um, I touched earlier about opportunities for improvement and emergency medical response has been talked about a lot in the past. Uh, how, and some services have been successful about this because of local arrangements uh, with uh, health and ambulance partners and funding to support that. Others are trying to do that uh, and others simply have been unable to get into the conversation with health partners around it. But if you're an on-call firefighter, then your opportunity to give even more back into your local community doing some of that work uh, feels great, but again, has to have flexibility because not every on-call firefighter is going to be able or prepared to step in and take on some of those additional roles and responsibilities if it doesn't balance with those sort of personal life pieces that we talked about. Um, and then I'd, I'd say th three other things. Um, one is that um, one is we have, um, we have to listen um, and we have to listen to what is important to on-call firefighters and, and what does an on-call firefighter want. I've never been an on-call firefighter, so I haven't lived and breathed that. I've worked with a lot of them, but I've never lived and breathed it myself. So that kind of being prepared to, to listen to what uh, the views are and you can do that very locally 
but equally we can do that nationally through data research evidence uh, and collecting together some of the stuff that's gone before and seeing where some of the gaps are in that research and evidence and seeking to plug those gaps and then take some decisions on the back of that. Uh, and then the last two, one is um, you've got to be prepared to fail. Uh, you've just got to be prepared to try stuff and it not work uh, and that not be a bad thing um, because the, the only way you're going to come up with something that's better is along the way you're going to fail uh, three, four, 34 times until you eventually get to something that works uh, and failure is just part of that process but there's a whole issue there around kind of how organizations respond to failure and then thirdly and i'll finish on this one because i remember um you, you'll have been at the conference tristan i'm sure uh, i hadn't been in the role that long and uh, the nfcc ran the on-call conference it had been a couple of years ago now and there were some speakers from the us and uh, europe uh, who came and spoke at the conference and I thought you know I'm going to drop into this um, and listen to, to their ideas uh, and of course what I heard was um, two really well qualified colleagues who came in and spoke about exactly the same challenges they're having in the US and EU um, without really any great solutions to the problems and they just presented it in a slightly different accent to how you and I would from a UK perspective and I'm not sure I came out of that conference either disappointed or slightly reassured that we're not dealing with this uh, on our own so I, th I think that I mean I'm sure Steve Healy would have uh, when he did his podcast would have gone into a lot more detail uh, than that because he's much more closer to the detail than I am since I stepped away but that that's the sort of headline things for me um, and I think that the challenge for us in NFCC is to support Steve and Andy uh, with the resource to kind of set up all the stuff and work with partners and that's yourself and many others um, to come up with some practical things that we could introduce into services to make things better. Yeah, um, I, you and I have spoken about this, um, you know, over the years and we will agree on 95 percent of stuff and i've noted pretty much all your points down and, and agree with everything you say uh, i think steve healy is the right person for that role i've known steve uh, a long time i think he's he's ab he's absolutely signed up to on call being yeah. fit for purpose but it's not broken it needs it needs some tlc so i think that was a great appointment um the, the preparing to fail thing i give devon and uh, somerset a shout out for yeah. that They've, they've been constantly looking at doing something different. Uh, hasn't always worked. Uh, they're currently trialling paper availability that seems to be working. Yes, it's required investment, but that investment um, looks like it's, it's bearing fruit. Listening, 100%. Services invariably don't. One size doesn't fit all. We agree on that. Um, on the financial reward, I think our view is that people don't join for the money, but they leave because of the money. The, yeah. the, the, the ask and the expectation is just too great. Yeah. Um, and that can be, that can be down to the way that they're managed and the, the restrictive contracts that have come out, which have been driven by, by HR. Um, if it was all about money, then South Wales wouldn't have the problems that they've got, which is no, not really any different to any other brigade. And they pay their, their on-call quite, quite well. Um, Lancashire, Steve will admit, they doubled the retainer. Hasn't necessarily made a difference. So I think from where we're coming from, flexibility, you've, you've touched on that 100%. 100%. 
we we've been championing broadening the role for some time. Yeah. And, and, and we will continue to do so because um, it's great that the prevention agenda worked, you know, reducing calls 30, 40, 40%. But that meant that on call had a real term uh, pay cut because of the, the structure of the retained duty system and broadening of the role would, would help to, to fill some of that void. I think, um, yes, they do need to feel inclusive and, and hopefully we're going to touch on migration in a moment whereby I think there are some services that make their on-call feel that they are inferior compared to their whole time counterparts. Um, and the recruitment process, I could go on. The recruitment process is far too long. You know, there's still examples out there of it taking 18 months from, you know, your, your, your uh, point of interest to actually sitting on a pump. Yeah. There's, there's loads of things we can do. There's loads of things what you and I will agree on. And we are, you know, more than happy to help in any way we can, the NFCC, in delivering all those ambitions. Yeah, fantastic. Well, let's continue to do that. And uh, uh, we just need to get on and do some of this sort of stuff and uh, highlight the good practice that's happening in services and encourage others to um, come alongside. Yeah. And, and Steve's promised to come back. He's going to do another podcast uh, when he will provide listeners with an update. <clears throat> so let's move on to migration. Yep. On call to whole time. What are your thoughts on on how this should work? What this what should this look like? Yeah. So I think um, I think I think there's a range of views on this. It's fair to say, um, and you'll have come across those, I'm sure. And I'll give you my uh, I'll give you you my perspective, and I'll draw from um, the work we did in Suffolk. Uh, when I was there, um, and where I I saw, uh, and as, as did other colleagues, a real benefit around migration in a very rural on-call fire and rescue service, a real benefit in migration, uh, both for individuals who wanted to migrate, but also for the um, for the organisation itself. Um, but but it, it was never a free ticket. And you'll understand what I mean by that um, in a second. And I'll reflect back on when I, um, one of the last stations I went to uh, when I left um, Suffolk two, two, three, nearly three years ago now, um, there were three watch managers uh, on that station across the four watches. Uh, and three of the four watch managers had come into that watch manager role from the on-call. Um, and they'd either come in on a, on a sideways move uh, into that role through through a process uh, or they'd been promoted into those roles through a competitive process that was open to all. Um, and and I, th- I think they, w- they would have all had different experiences through that place, but actually they all brought quite a different perspective into that role. And we, we, of- we often talk about diversity in fire and rescue services and the focus tends to be around um, protected characteristics and quite rightly so. Um, but equally, there is diversity of kind of background and experience in the fire service that adds benefit um, as well. And uh, and I remember being on that station, and I didn't consciously go there for that. And actually, I didn't really appreciate that that's quite what happened until I went there and was having a conversation with one of the watch managers. Um, but it was notable. So I think um, I think there's there's something about. I mean, so my personal view is that you you can migrate from the on call into the whole time. And I was in a service that did it for uh, five or six years. Um, and sometimes it went really well and other times it wasn't as successful. And I think my point around that is that if you're going to do it um, and you have a, a policy 
that's right and proper to enable it to happen in an open, transparent, fair and safe way and things like that, uh, is that you do need to have a focus on the individual uh, in that process because nobody ever lands in a role perfect on day one. Everybody lands in a role, uh, literally, and it's your first day, and you have to then develop into that role. So the process to appoint you in the role is all about your potential for the future, informed by what has happened in the past. And I don't think we should discard the what's happened in the past. And I've uh, again, when I was back in Suffolk, we we used when we were doing recruitment and appointment and promotions, uh, we used the phrase uh, "recruit attitude, develop skills." Um, so I think it, what, what we should have is a migration approach that is based upon uh, bringing people into roles uh, who have got a fantastic positive attitude um, this, and, and a set of skills. But actually, the skills can be developed and grown and increased over time uh, in a way that it's much more difficult to do, frankly, around uh, attitude, values and behaviours and things like that. Um, so... And so the final point I would say, I suppose, is, is when I said it was not a free ticket. Um, and my, my point there is that the protected characteristic diversity of the workforce in the fire and rescue service is extremely important. Uh, and we're not as diverse as we want to be or need to be at the moment. And we won't achieve our potential until we are more uh, diverse. And of course, um, when I was in Suffolk, um, and if I simply recruited uh, or appointed and promoted people from that migration process from uh, on-call into whole time, then I am drawing from a, a from a protected characteristic perspective, not a very diverse group of people. So I think that's where there needs to be some balance in there uh, around recruitment and appointment and promotion where um, you've got a mixed approach across all of them but yeah. migration from on-call to whole time would be part of that mixed approach so so that that's my experience around it and my personal view around it but equally i know there are others who have slightly different views as well I, well i think our view is probably very very similar to yours um you know you, you take the individual you you take the skills that they have the amount of experience they have etc and then you fill in the gaps over over a a relevant period of time. Um, what frustrates us, uh, and I'll give you a, a, a conversation I had earlier on this week with a, a, a national official. I won't name the brigades involved, but they were neighbouring brigades. And one did a migration of three days transition and the neighbouring brigade did 12 weeks. And we struggle with that. Because, and it goes back to, you know, you saying about being listened to and, and feeling inclusive. If you're treated as an on-call firefighter um, coming into whole time as somebody who's just come off the street that needs a 12-week recruits course, then you're not going to feel very included. You're not going to feel very valued. And that's, you know, that that's the struggle we have. Yeah. So totally signed up with, with what you've said but it you know there's some what we believe is bad practice or poor practice out there yeah and it's and it's worth me saying that this isn't an area where the nfcc has done substantial work um so I, my 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 perspective into it is a personal one and one of having been a chief fire officer when i was in suffolk rather than an nfcc position um and i know one of the things that 
we, we used to do, where you get back to that individual approach is in that scenario you used, you've used there, uh, if an individual felt that they would benefit and would like to go through a 12-week full process, then the opportunity would be open for them to do that if they felt that that would give them greater confidence and uh, assurance when they land into the role. So, um, so I wouldn't necessarily say it's, it's an example that one size doesn't necessarily uh, fit all in there. Um, and of course, when when we were doing it and people were applying to be firefighters alongside members of the public, um, there was still a process that people needed to go through as non-call firefighter to apply and be compared against uh, members of the public, but you didn't go through all of the process that a member of the public would because you're already an employed member of the organisation and there are elements of the process you've already been through. So again, you sort of individualise uh, the approach would be would be my opinion. Um, I know you're really uh, tight for time. Just just to quickly touch on culture. Yeah. Um, obviously, the, the services have been in the media spotlight, particularly since January of this year. I know you've done a piece of work with regards to the culture action plan uh, within your role in NFCC. Um, for, from the sharp end and the stuff that we've seen representing members, there's some really, really horrific stuff out there. Um, and I just wondered what your view was on on how we move forward with this. Yeah, it's, uh, and I'm glad you've asked the question, Tristan, and, and you're right, we've, the NFCC have produced our own uh, culture action plan, and all, but although I use the term our own culture action plan, it's a plan that was developed in consultation with all partners, and, uh, and thanks for your engagement and involvement uh, at the Culture and Inclusion Conference that we ran earlier on this year when you spoke on one of the panel sessions, and it was from that conference, and what people across all fire services and all of the different national partners were saying, which has shaped the NFCC plan. So um, from a sort of general position statement, personally and professionally, really, I mean, what, what we've seen, what we've seen where people have had the, um, the courage and the confidence to step forward and share some of their personal experiences in fire services, often going back quite some time, is wholly unacceptable behaviours in fire services um, and some some really horrific examples that have been shared more widely. Um, and there is nobody, uh, well, there is hardly anybody in the fire and rescue service who doesn't want it to be an inclusive place to work. Uh, and there is absolutely no place for harassment, bullying, discrimination in a fire and rescue service in 2023 uh, or beyond uh, in the same way there isn't in any other organisation. And what I think we're seeing at the moment is um, I touched right at the start and talked about society has changed, the world has changed and people have changed. And we're seeing that around culture and inclusion uh, and a, an, a, an absolutely understandable and right intolerance to people who are discriminated against or harassed or bullied or whatever it might be. Um, so it's absolutely right that fire services and the NFCC and other organisations respond to that. And we're a public service. We should hold ourselves uh, in a position that is over and above what we see in society because, uh, frankly, if we don't do that as public services and as public servants, then we can't expect anybody else to do that as well. Um, I think in, in terms of your, your kind of, so what do we do about it? Um, it it's a bit like the on-call duty system. I, I don't think there is a single silver bullet that, that deals with this. Um, I think it starts, it starts with leadership, um, starts with um, national leadership, starts with local leadership, 
But frankly, it starts with the leadership responsibility that every single person has who wears a rank or a role in a fire and rescue service, whether they wear a uniform or don't. Uh, and it starts with personal leadership, whether you uh, carry a rank or a role anyway. You just have a kind of personal responsibility around this as well. And uh, we've produced our plan. There's a raft of um, deliverables that we've set out in the plan. Some of those have been up and running for some time. Some of those will be new. But I think it's about, if I pick some of those out, it's about leadership programs. It's about uh, really good quality recruitment and retention. It's about having a really strong core code of ethics and the standards that support that. Um, it's about having um, learning and development in fire and rescue services um, that uh, does many things. But one of the things, it, it gives people the confidence and the capability to be this active bystander. Um, so when you are in an environment, doesn't matter what that environment is, and there's three or four of you stood around and somebody says something and it doesn't feel right or you're, you just frankly know it's not right, and uh, the easy thing to do and what's probably happened too often in the past is that people have felt slightly uncomfortable but have turned a blind eye to it. And all of a sudden that becomes the norm and it escalates from there. And being an active bystander is simply having the confidence to kind of put your hand up and say, I'm, I'm, I'm not OK with that. Um, and having and the have... confidence that you will be supported by your employer should you do that. Yeah, absolutely spot on. Um, and, and equally, if you're a victim. Um, we've we've done a lot of work recently around independent confidential reporting lines, which probably by the end of the year, pretty much every fire and rescue service will have. Um, so the facility will be there for somebody to um, contact that line and say, I think I've been treated, I've been discriminated against, harassed, bullied, whatever it might be, or I'm unhappy with how something's been dealt with. So the system will be there to better support that than it's been in the past. The next stage of that is giving people the confidence to be able to use that system, knowing that there will be a appropriate outcome at the end of it, and you'll be involved in the the um, uh, the kind of process and kept informed and engaged and all of that uh, as you go along. So, they're they're just some examples. And then the last one I would say is, and this is a really tricky one as well, is what does good look like? Um, because in in a year's time, or five years' time, or ten years' time, we're going to want to be able to ideally demonstrate that we've made progress around culture and inclusion or if we haven't made progress to understand why we haven't and in what areas we haven't and the only way we can do that is if we come up with some ways of measuring what good culture and inclusion looks like in a fire and rescue service both at a local uh, and a national level and uh, and we, we're doing some work with um, lots of other organizations out there who are wrestling with the same challenge at the moment to see what they're doing and what's worked well for them and what hasn't and we'll learn from those experiences and put that stuff in place and um, I mean I've, this is my number one priority so absolutely committed to this for the rest of my tenure as the NFCC chair Tristan. Yeah and we're, we're, we're pleased to hear that you've certainly got our support on this because we cannot get it wrong. Uh, too many people have been let down, too many people are looking at um, NFCC FRSA etc um, to make sure that you know, the improvement is is driven forward. Right, uh, listen, I'm really grateful for your time. I know we've overrun, but Mark Hardingham, NFCC Chair, thank you so much for coming on to Priority Message and giving up your time. There's loads of things we haven't spoken about that um, I'd love to cover with you in a future podcast um, if, if we can get a date in your diary in the yeah, future. Sure. 
Yeah, absolutely, Tristan. Thanks very much. Really enjoyed the hour with you and uh, all the best with this and future podcasts. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Mark. Take care. Thanks, Tristan. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Priority Message, why not subscribe to the podcast and recommend to your colleagues? We hope you will be joining us again soon.